Hey folks, welcome back to the DC Precast. I am Brian. With me is Vince. Zach is dead. We're sorry to report. Um, dead. Died he, again. He died again, yeah. But he his ghost told us that he'd want us to soldier on without him for this week's episode. So that's what we're going to do. We're, we're going to honor his memory by talking about comics. Specifically, the DC Comics released on the 20th of June, 2018. Um... Before we get into the the issues proper, Vince, would you say that this is uh, a a second week in a row of more comics, or less? Yes. <laughs> no. Of uh, of more or less good comics. Uh, less this time. <laughs> well, less than last week, certainly. But I, I would say that this is still above the sort of average that DC was running at for the last six months. There were a number of very good comics this week. Yes. Yes. Yes, I agree. Um, That's I, what you want me to say. I can. <laughs> no, no, I, I'm, I'm asking you sincerely if you believe that. There were more good comics than bad. Yes, and I feel like lately that hasn't been the case. Yeah. Okay. Hey, man. I, you know, I, it's, it's a shame that I dropped out of dental school because I'm always pulling fucking teeth. So <laughs> if I had finished my training, I'd have been better off. Listen, I'm still a little bit hurt that Zach left the earthly plane for the. <laughs> Big inflatables in the sky. <laughs> you know, last week you told me you didn't even remember Mr. Wacky, but twice today you have referenced that video to me. So, <laughs> it's come back around. And away we go. Abracadabra, one, two, three. <laughs> Let us see what we will see. Um, so, about Aquaman. Aquaman number 37, written by Dan Abnett, illustrated by Ricardo Federici. Um, a lot of hot social media action around this comic. Yeah, I, I was saying to Vince before the show started, we uh, we had the exclusive preview on this at Multiversity this week, and a number of people were tweeting about how this arc was garbage and how they can't wait for this run to be over. And I just don't understand what those people are reading. Yeah, I don't get it. This is to me, this is really good. Now I. If their complaint was that it's it's become a little bit dragged out, I I could go there with them on that. I sure, think. Sure. But or, from or, a quality standpoint, I. Yeah, I I will also, I will I will um. I'll entertain arguments that this feels very different than the Aquaman we've had the last four or five years, but that's why I like it so much. Like, maybe this is, maybe there are people out there who really, truly, from the bottom of their hearts, loved the, uh, you know, Aquaman and the other series. And this, I guess this isn't for those people, but that doesn't mean that this is a bad series. I think this is a quite good series. Yeah, definitely. And let's be honest, there was nobody who loved Aquaman and the others. Oh, man, I don't know. (laughs) Um, I just think it's really tough to to do a good Aquaman book. And I think, well, I think Abnett has, I also think that if you're the type of person that, um, gets bored with sort of these longer arc type things or, or, or when a book stays the same for a little too long, 
Um, I think it's easy to just think that Aquaman is boring. Oh, Aquaman's boring again. You know, um, he's a really tough nut to crack as far as doing something interesting with. And uh, well, I think this has been a really great run for Abnett. I do knowing that like Mira becoming more prominent possibly in the future is a possibility. I am kind of looking forward to that because it will shake things up a little. Yes. Agreed. Um, and I keep expecting it to happen. And then it's another issue that's kind of following the same tack that the book's been on, you know? Well, I wonder if this is, if that's not happening because the events of her solo series are taking place concurrently to this. Right. And they have to dovetail at the end. Yep. Right, yeah. I, I think that's most likely. It just it makes for a sort of a less satisfying um it it draws everything out, you know. It um, does. It does. I actually was thinking about this earlier today because um there are very few characters in DC's stable who are as recognizable as Aquaman, but also as notoriously disliked. Or not disliked, that's the wrong word. Maybe disrespected. Is that is that a better word for how fans treat Aquaman? Yeah. So, like, I, I totally understand wanting to give Mira more of a role because I think she's a good character, but also because it's not... You're not taking away from a character that people love. You're adding to it. You're making it more interesting by adding Mira. But do you just call the book Aquaman and Mira at, that, at this point? Do you call it Atlantis? Do you call it... Or do you just keep calling it Aquaman and just everyone knows it's Aquaman and Mira? Yeah, I don't know. That's, yeah. I think it could help the perception of the book if it wasn't just called Aquaman. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, but this issue, um, you know, I, I, I think both of us will will agree that Federici's doing a really nice job, even if he's not quite uh, Stepan Sheik, uh who is, you know? Yeah. I think that his style is close enough in sort of general tone that it doesn't feel jarring when you're reading the whole run put together. Right. Yes, I I agree. Um, yes. And I think... His Aquaman looks a lot like Father John Misty. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, it's right up your alley. Ah, it is, yep. <laughs> Neptune's favorite customer. Oh, hi-oh. There it is. There it is. Yep, good book, good book. Yeah, yeah. I um, I am really interested if the rumors of Kelly Sudakonic taking the book over are true. Oh yeah, because I think that she could do something. I, first of all, I, I think she she's the type of writer who has shaken up some some previously underperforming um, titles, like for instance, Captain Marvel. Like when you think about the the reason it's a Captain Marvel movie is really due to Kelly Sue DeConnick. Yes, what she did with the character, and so you know, I, I think that she could shake up the book really well, and also I think it's good that if you're going to have Mira be more present to have a female writer writing the book yeah um not again not because you know men can't write female characters whatever it's just a, it's a good look and everyone knows it don't don't come at me internet um <laughs> but yeah 
I uh, I'm excited to see where this goes. I am not excited for the August September Suicide Squad Aquaman <laughs> crossover, but that's a whole other story. We will see. Speaking of not excited, let's talk about Batman number forty nine. Let's written by Tom King, illustrated by Michael Janine. Um, I mean, this issue should just be called Nostril because it's so on the nose. <laughs> it's unbearable to read this comic. Yeah. This is a bad comic. Yeah. So let's just set the stage here. So Catwoman gets shot by the Joker and sh- and then she slashes him across the throat with her uh I guess it's with her with her claws. And uh so they're lying in this church surrounded by rubble and corpses for seemingly a very long time having like banal, polite, water cooler conversation while they're both holding their holding their wounds so as not to bleed out. Mm-hmm. It's this, just oh, this it's it's very much like a bottle episode of a TV show or like a, a pretentious play. Yes. It, it, you know, it's like waiting for Godot or something. Where it's these two characters just doing dialogue, and you're supposed to think like, <clears throat> you just just the idea that they're laying here just doing back and forth dialogue for the entire issue is supposed to be some sort of impressive writing trick or something. Um, but here's my problem with it, because I I actually love <clears throat> the idea of I like when villains. Um, get together and both explore the ways that they are allies and also adversaries with one another, you know? Sure. I think that's a really great uh, superhero, supervillain story convention. I think you're going to see a great example of that when we talk about Justice League a little bit later. Uh, But here, you know, well, I, I love the idea of a Catwoman Joker uh, pairing where they kind of talk about the old times and and you know and and behave as if there's a lot of history between them. I think that's a, a interesting and valid perspective to take here. My problem with it is that it sucks. Well, what the what the comic is intent on doing is taking eighty years of uh, subtext about these characters. You know, is the Joker horny for Batman? Does did Batman actually create the Joker? Does the Joker, you know, is everything we know about the Joker true, or are there multiple Jokers, or are there multiple uh, uh, possible origin stories for him? Does he even have an origin story? All this subtext that fans have talked about and thought about for eighty years. And you're just going to have the characters sit there and and say it out loud, you know, like three quarters of the way through the issue. The Joker says something like, but I uh, but Batman created me, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, (laughs) thanks for coming out and saying what the subtext, you know, right. You you said the quiet part loud. Like, yeah, (laughs) 
we and that's not that doesn't I'm I'm not going to be impressed as a reader to just see Selena and the Joker hash out all these philosophical ideas of of what they are as characters just right in the text. It's not going to impress me and it's certainly not entertaining, you know. Yeah. I, I'm going to take it a step further because there are parts of the issue that do what you talk about which is sort of discuss their role in Batman's rogues gallery and their relationship to one another. But there's an equal, if not greater amount of them literally saying the kind of conversations like when you and like, I don't know if you're ever in the situation where like, you take your stepdaughter to something for school or whatever, and you're stuck there talking to another dad and you only have like four things to talk about. And so you have to like slowly go through those four things so you're not just sitting there in silence the whole time Mm -hmm. and like the first thing they say is like so why does the penguin have an umbrella (laughs) yeah that that shouldn't be the if they're both lying there near death that should never be the thing they talk about and that's and it's not presented like oh the joker he's so crazy he's gonna ask her about the the penguin's umbrella because she she buys right into it and she starts it the first thing she says is why does the penguin have an umbrella is that a thing she's shot the day before her wedding her Husband-to-be is supposedly dead on the ground, or at least shot on the ground near her, and she's thinking about the sartorial choices of the fucking penguin? Yeah, and I, I, just, I mean, I think that's the point. But but, I, but why is it the point? Yes, exactly. That's that's it. Yes. Yep. Like, this, it's not an accident that Tom King is writing it that way. No, you know? no, but like, why? Yeah, yeah exactly. What does, yeah, do, what does it do for the story? It's It's the comic book version of comedians and cars getting coffee, you know? It's it's slightly less pretentious still. <laughs> What's well, the deal? It's um it's Richard Lewis like debating something meaningless with Larry David, you know? Yes. But again, that's funny because those guys are comedians. Right, right. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And uh yeah, uh can I, can I talk about maybe the most egregious sin in this issue, though? Sure, yep. Like, you're asking Michael Janine to do this issue of just two characters lying prone on their back the whole time. <laughs> this is one of the best illustrators in the business, and he he makes the book look gorgeous. But, you know, it, it, it's like having a four-star chef make you a bowl of cereal. <laughs> As long as it's not Mario Batali. Ooh. <laughs> Italy. Ladies. <laughs> Italy. <laughs> Mamma mia. Alright. Um, anything else to say about this garbage? Uh, no. No. Looking forward to the wedding next issue. Yeah. The wedding. I was thinking we should do a, a wedding episode of the show. Who's going to get married? Um, Zach and I? I, I, I mean, I'm a little offended by that, but because I want in. I mean, you know, I just feel like it's a. Uh, He's got that pharma money. He does. He does. Um, what, what if it's a surprise and Dan DiDio is the one getting married? What's that? What if it's a surprise and Dan DiDio is the one getting married? To Batman? To, to, to one of us. 
Oh, to one of us. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, you're you're doing an improv setup here. Yeah, right? I am. Yes. <laughs> well, will you take my hand in marriage? <laughs> in good times and bad. In Burbank <laughs> in New York. <laughs> With Jeff Johns or without Jeff Johns. <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> trying to think of a really lackluster New 52 property that he... Uh... In Blackhawks? <laughs> oh, what the fuck was that? Sideways is my best man. <laughs> what, was, what, was the, what was the book that Larflees was the backup of? Oh, uh, 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 we bring this one up all I the know, time. I know, I it know. It's called like... Um... <laughs> it's called like... Uh... With trunks and no trunks? <laughs> No, that was just Bernie Sanders saying that. Uh, yeah. That was, uh, <laughs> Let me be very clear. Yeah. Uh, Larfley's New 52 comic. Hold uh, on. Uh, <laughs> I keep wanting to say things that are other things, like I said, with, yeah. Le- with Legion, but it's not a Legion thing. I keep saying The Tempest. But it's oh, the te- oh, it's oh fuck. What is it? Oh, Zach. <laughs> Zach, come from beyond the grave. <laughs> Zach, come help us. It's the something, right? Yeah, the. the um... Oh, God. Oh, Robert Maland is screaming at us right yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> Every listener we have is either logging off or red in the face from yelling at us so much right now. Let's just keep playing out. The, let's do like an hour long bit of us not being able to figure out what this is called. Uh, the. Um... The, the stranger, the, the, no, that's when you sit on your hand and, uh, um, the, I'm looking it up. What was the, the, um, it was blue beetle, right? Blue. Oh man. Oh yes, 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 yes. Um, (sighs) sorry listeners. I'm so sorry. No, we're not. We're just, this is funny. They like it. They enjoy it. Nobody's turning this off right now. Uh, God damn it. What is it? I'm looking it up. Hang on. The uh, Haunted. No, that's not right. <laughs> no. Uh, uh, <laughs> this, is, this isn't even funny anymore. This is just... No. Oh, we're really overdoing it now. Threshold. Threshold. <laughs> Tempest was really close. Yeah. So. In Blackhawks or Threshold. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Long long way to get to that bit, but I'm sure it paid off for I'm our sure listeners. I'm sure it did too, yes. Um, so, yeah. We, we really just sound like Catwoman and the Joker in that last comic now. Uh, see? See what we did there? Maybe it is good writing. Yeah. All right, well, let's talk about uh, Batman Prelude to the Wedding, Red Hood versus, versus Anarchy, with the, uh, with the hilarious cover text of you crashed the wrong party jerk face <laughs> everybody make sure to put that in your back pocket next time someone uh comes to your cookout in the backyard that wasn't invited uh, it's a sick burn yep so um i think that this is again an enjoyable comic I think it's probably, very, very funny. Very yes, funny. Yes, there are a lot of absolutely funny moments. Probably the weakest of the bunch so far. Yeah. Yeah, I, and I think that's because Anarchy's not that well realized of a character. Right, right. I think Jason Todd's role in this is a lot of fun. 
Yes, and it gets me excited for Celia to write this character again in the future. Yeah, yep. Um, he can, he kind of extorts Batman for money, which is <laughs> yes, but then does the uh, but then does the the good thing at the end. Yeah, yeah, and yes, yep. And uh, Bizarro's funny in this. That it was nice to yes, yeah. It nice unobtrusively brought the the outlaws in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Selena Selena was on her bachelorette party, which was kind of fun mm-hmm. to see. And she gets an inflatable Nightwing, which we saw in an earlier issue. Oh yeah, callbacks, baby. Um, I can't believe you said inflatable Nightwing and not inflatable Dick. Um, well, that's in case we become inflatables later. <laughs> oh my God, Dick became an inflatable. He did. He, he's the original Mister Wacky. <laughs> what kind of fun are we gonna have, Dick? <laughs> Uh, helping others. <laughs> Bouncy yeah. fun. Man, if you're not following us on Twitter, how do you listen to the show? <laughs> uh, we're just referencing and referencing and referencing. Um, no, you're right. You know, the uh, the anarchy stuff here is is fine. It's decently played out, but it's just not as it's not as compelling as say the hush stuff from the first week or um. Who was the uh, who was the villain last week? The uh, Riddler. The Riddler. Yeah, sorry. I'm sorry. Was it Rachel Ghoul the first one actually? Rachel Ghoul. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I'm all of those characters obviously have far more Batman connection than Anarchy does. Um, I, I wonder yes. why he was the one chosen. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, on paper, I could see. Anarchy matching up with Red Hood just based on the fact that Jason Todd has always kind of been treated like the outcast of the Bat family. Um, And Anarchy is kind of a kind of an outcast villain. I don't think he's anyone that you'll ever really see paired up all that often with other villains, you know? No, but uh, would, but if you're going to do an anarchy story, wouldn't it be a spoiler anarchy story based on what just happened in tech? Right, yes. Yep. If you, uh, That's why I say, like, on paper, mm-hmm. like, very superficially, this okay. makes sense. Right down to the fact that one is wearing a red helmet and the other is essentially wearing a gold mask or helmet. Right. You know, like, quite literally on a surface level, they're similar-looking characters. But you're right. On a deeper level... They strain to make the actual like uh, storytelling connection that would have it make sense. Um, I think the comic's a lot of fun, but I think yeah, if you if you were looking for a little bit of a deeper, more legitimate DC Comics connection, especially in the current status quo, you're right. Spoiler would have been the. But then does does spoiler on the cover sell as many copies as Red Hood on the cover? You know, it's not. it just right. is what it is. You know. Yeah. Um. And also, she and she and Tim sort of drove off into the sunset. They did. Um, although I'm sure Tim will be there for the wedding. Ooh. We'll see. I don't know even. <laughs> uh, one thing I did want to bring up that is not really related to this. We talked last week about the Psycho Pirates gold mask being possibly the mask on the cover of Heroes in Crisis number one. But Anarchy's mask might also fit that bill. Oh yeah, that's true. Not that I think I think Cycle Pirate is more likely, considering you know. Tom King's been using him, and yes. they've done like they've done the therapy thing with uh, 
with Gotham Girl yes. using Psycho Pirates masks. So. Yes, yes. But just, you know, just putting it out there. Um, but yeah, do we have one more of these? Uh, I want to say it was were, a five I, issue. I thought there were five. Did we already get five? Did we already get four? We we had Rachel Ghoul. We had uh, the Riddler. We had Hush. We had Hush. That's the one I was forgetting. Okay, um, and Anarchy, yep. right? Yeah, should, should yep. be one more. Yep. There's one more. There's one more. Um, I don't remember what it is though. It's um, oh, Harley and the Joker, of course. Harley, Harley and the Joker. Maybe we can just end it at four. <laughs> um, that's all right, though. All right, well, let's talk Batwoman number 16, the finale of The Fall of the House of Cain, written by Marguerite Bennett, illustrated by Fernando Blanco, um, with a really, really beautiful variant cover. Who did this variant? Um, I think it's Michael Cho. Let me look that up. It was Michael Cho, yes. Yeah, he is he is doing amazing, amazing covers for DC. He's doing a lot of those um, omnibus covers, like the Golden Age omnibus, Silver Age omnibus, whatever. And, yeah, those uh, are great. They're really, really fantastic. So uh, good on you, Michael Cho. Yeah. Um, I, you, you know, I, I've been talking a lot. Tell us what you thought of this issue. I really liked this one, Brian. This this really brought it all together for me. Um, the, what it tries to do again, I think this is, I think this is a very common theme with Batwoman. You can see Marguerite Bennett juggling all these different themes and then there'll be one issue here and there where from beginning to end, that issue is just like, oh, boom, there's the perfect, uh, conception of that theme in one issue and you almost didn't even need some of this other stuff, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I think that's true here too. I think in one issue, Marguerite Bennett beautifully, uh, contrasts Batwoman from Batman, Kate Kane from Bruce Wayne in a way that she and other writers like James Tynion and even Greg Rucka have danced around here and there. But Marguerite Bennett takes this issue and really crystallizes that idea in a way that really worked for me in that, you know, Kate is going to choose her sister over the Bat family every time, even if that means, you know, going rogue. And that's an idea, again, that they've played with since Rebirth started. Yes. That that Kate Kane was going to do that. But... I felt like the justification for it, justification for it, was always a little bit lacking from everybody that's written her. And in this issue, I see it so clearly in the way that she wrote it, in the just the artistic flourishes from Blanco. This was Blanco, right? Yes. Um. Yeah. Th- this this to me was a home run in a series that has had. Some really high highs and then a bunch of really middling issues. I agree with almost everything you said. Um, okay. I, I thought it was a really good issue. I actually th- took something away from it that is is probably something that's just on me for not really ever thinking about. But I thought it was a really interesting touch. So 
Kate and Bruce are talking about essentially what happens at. Th- he says Clayface was strike one. This is strike two, and mm-hmm. she says, "What happens when I hit three? And he says, "You'll never be Batwoman again." Mm. And I was just thinking about it. I never thought of Bruce as the one to decide if she was Batwoman or not. Like when she starts, she doesn't consult Bruce about it. Right. Um, right. I find it interesting that he would be in a position to take that away from her. Yeah, I and I I don't know if that's literal. You know what I mean? Neither do I. It, it's just an interesting thing to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure, for sure. I I think what he means is, and you'll probably agree that either she's not going to be Batwoman because she's no longer going to stand for the reason that she got behind the ma- the symbol in the first place, mm-hmm. or whether Batman is. Uh, you know, in charge of the Batwoman ma- uh, mask or not, he's going to do everything in his power to make sure that right she's in Arkham or something. You know, right <laughs> or I, Sanctuary or yeah, yeah. Which is which which if you're coming at it from Kate's point of view is also not his place. Well, that's why I found it so interesting. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yeah. I just thought this was a really good issue of I think this did as good of a job or better of a job than Detective did in illustrating the the tension between the two. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. uh yeah, I really wish this book was more like this issue. Yeah. Because I don't know if it would be cancelled in August if that was the case. Right. Um But yeah, it really would and, and I think Fernando Blanco does an oh, excellent man. job here. Let's see. From for for me, from the page where Alice or Betty grabs the uh, grabs Batwoman's arm on the motorcycle, which is page ten of our PDF, uh, until basically the end of the issue, but you know, the, the better part of the rest of the issue, it's this sort of like chase sequence between her on the motorcycle and Batman. And it goes through this like, um, you know, museum esque, uh, sort of atrium, mm-hmm. this really open atrium. And it's just this gorgeous motorcycle chase sequence. Uh, Blanco's never been better than this i think and that's saying something because we've been big fans for yes years now yes um i've said before that i think that batwoman is the best designed costume of the 21st century Mm -hmm. i think it's a beautiful costume and when an artist really gets her costume there's a certain through line that connects all these different artists that have drawn her even though I don't think you would ever mistake J.H. Williams for Amy Reader for Fernando Blanco, but there's just this uniformity to her costume that really connects the different creators to the character. And I think this is the first issue that Blanco got it perfect, and it really fits alongside the best Batwoman art. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do want to say there was one thing that I was not really a fan of storyline-wise in this issue. And that's the the device of using the sound of his parents' killer's gun. Oh. 
<laughs> that was very silly. Yes. Yeah, it, it, it's it's silly. It's it's putting uh, an unnecessary spotlight on an event that we never need to see spotlighted ever again. <laughs> and uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, that. All right, let's talk about uh, the Brave and the Bold Batman and Wonder Woman number five, written and illustrated by Liam Sharp. So every week, every month, rather. I sit down to read this book, mm-hmm. and every month I give myself, I say, you can't quit five pages in. <laughs> but there's just, it's such a gorgeous looking book, but there's so much text, and there's every, everyone is describing an action that is far more complicated than it needs to be, and there's so much history that we're just not privy to, and so Sharp tries to put it all on the page. And the book just winds up being incomprehensible at points. Yeah. Am I wrong? No, I, yeah, I can't, I do the same thing. I, I, every time I try, cause there's stuff in here that I like and it looks gorgeous. And I think there are bits, like I catch bits of dialogue here and there that I think are really funny. Like I think he, I think Liam Sharp has a pretty good sense of humor from what I gather from, <laughs> from the bits of it that I've read. Uh, but I can't – by the end of it, I can't really make heads or tails of what's really going on. Um, and maybe I'm just a huge dumbass. That's possible. <laughs> <laughs> it's possible I should live out the rest of my days in the land of inflatables <laughs> and and not trying to uh, critique comics or anything. But, um, but I'm having the same experience you are. Um, and so I don't know what to say about the story because I'm not entirely sure of what's going on. <laughs> um, but I do have to say some of these pages look so gorgeous and they're the kind of fantasy I'm a big uh I'm a big mark for like 80s fantasy, like 70s 80s fantasy like legend or like uh the Jim Henson various Jim Henson projects that weren't like Labyrinth, the dark crystal. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And, um, you know, Willow and all that stuff. And I think there's some really great pages that tap into that sort of design work. And it's, it's, it's really my sweet spot for what I want, like fantasy to look like, Mm -hmm. but I can't, really get through the words well okay so this is something that i think is reveals my true dumbass nature as well um Uh which is that do you remember the the kieran gillen run of journey into mystery oh absolutely fantastic i read it it twice yeah me too um i have to say i struggled with that run in the beginning because the lettering reminded me of Warlord. Mm. And I always associated that kind of sort of more ornate lettering with books that I that when I was younger I didn't give a shit about. Because it was like it, it was it, it was symbolic of a certain type of story that I was not particularly interested in at the moment. And I'm obviously dumb for feeling that. And and as I've gotten I certainly don't feel the same way as I did 
uh, when I started, because I had taken a big break from comics and came back in right around Journey into Mystery. So that's part of the reason why I was feeling that way. But I just feel like this dialogue is so dense. And then to throw into it, to make it harder to physically read. Not that it's hard to read. It's harder to read. Yeah. I think it, it adds a real strain to the reading experience. Yeah, sure. I agree. Um, yeah, I uh, I would have much rather this be a, a silent book. But that's just me. Mm. All right, let's talk about Cave Carson. As Cave Carson has an interstellar eye, number four, written by John Rivera, illustrated by Michael Avon Oming. So, um, refresh my memory. Was it you or Zach that liked this? iteration better than the first iteration well i liked the first couple issues better than the first but now now i'm kind of right back to where i was okay which, the, is, in, which is what? which is which is that i like it but i uh, with this comic too i have no idea what's going on sometimes okay that is that is also fair there um, are times there are times when i turn the page and from one page to the other, I'm like, what? Is there a page like I'm missing or something? <laughs> what happened? You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah I and I don't. And, and in this case, I think it's more. I mean, I think I can reasonably fault the book a little bit for it. But I also think that it's less a problem of it um, just being so story heavy that it's tough for me to digest. But this is more like um, there. There is a problem with transitioning from from one scene to the next. You know, mm-hmm. um, I I can't always figure out how we got from here to there. I like a lot of what's going on in the individual moments, like a lot. Like I love them just like tasting mushrooms and and tripping balls. You know. I get it. I like it. But then all of a sudden it'll be there, there somewhere else in the next scene. And I don't understand how it all connects, you know? Yeah. That's, that's my problem with it. And then, and then I read the backup and I love the backup. The backup is this whole different tone and it's this just consistent, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's, it's written by John Rivera too, you know? So I don't think, I just think Rivera's operating on a different wavelength with the main book that I'm sometimes on and I'm sometimes not. Whereas in the backup, he's like writing note perfect, uh, like melancholy sci-fi mm-hmm. uh, that I really, really enjoy. Um, but yeah, what, what about you? What did you think about this issue? Because well, you've been really high on this. Yes, although I think I preferred the last volume to this volume Okay. thus far. Um there are definitely books that I feel the same way that you do about this book. Like, I think for me, I think Shade the Changing Woman mm. has this has the problem you described, mm-hmm. which is that there are times I just I'm 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 really enjoying the individual moments, but stringing it together is proper is problematic. I don't necessarily feel that way about this book, but I can understand why you do. I think this is a book that. For me, I just kind of let loose and just bask in the insanity of it. And a huge part of that is 
Michael Oming's art here. We've talked in the past about how we're not necessarily gigantic fans of his, but how he's doing such amazing work on this book. And I think this issue, he does so much here, partially because there's there's the sort of tripping balls sequences, but his art from page to page and sometimes even panel to panel is so fluid and different and interesting and unique. I mean, I'm, I'm looking in our PDF um, page. Uh, let's see here. page like five six and seven mm-hmm. where there's just like six or seven different styles represented on the page and all of them are represented really really well yeah yep uh, um oh that per- those that perspective stuff when they're like tripping yeah is so good yeah it, it really is this is a book that i i i said this was i would say overall I think Eternity Girl is giving it a run for its money, but I think that across the Young Animal experiment, for me it goes Doom Patrol, and then I think Cave Carson. Okay. Um, this is just particular. This is just this is sort of right in my interest wheelhouse. So, uh, I recognize that I'm a little bit higher on this than probably other folks are. That's okay. That's all right. Yeah. All right, let's do one more and then take a break. Uh, yeah. Damage number six. <laughs> um, I don't know why I thought of this, but the cover says, and now Swamp Thing. And I kind of was thinking, and now for something completely different. <laughs> yeah. uh, Listen, we're just going to throw all these guests at you, and now it's Swamp Thing. Yeah. And, uh, and I feel like the way Swamp Thing pops up in this issue... I've seen more, more subtle transitions on a Monty Python. So, um, but stop the sketch! You're being too silly. Exactly. Um, but this was written by uh, Robert Venditti, who you guys heard last week on the podcast talking about Hawkman, and it was illustrated by Diogenes Nevis. And um, there's uh, there's some weird stuff in this issue. <laughs> I only have one thought, so why don't you just you can you can no, go no, with no. the weird. Give us your one thought. Okay, my one thought is that there was a there was a panel in the comic, and I can't find it, but it's something. Ab- okay, hold on. Here we go. It's Ethan Avery saying, uh, uh, "There are people out there who want to control me too. They made me into damage. They want me to be their weapon. I won't do it. If I can find out the truth about what they've made me do, maybe they'll leave me alone." And that's like the. That's like the conceit of the book, basically, that, right? That's like, the mission Ethan, statement, yeah. Right. He's out there. Uh, you know, they did something to him, Colonel Jonas and the gang, to make him into damage, to use him as a weapon. And he's got to figure out the truth behind it and what he's going to do about it, blah, blah, blah. Buddy, I don't know if you're going to make it to that. So, like, get to the <laughs> fucking point here, right? Yeah. Like, I, the, my impression of this book is that it's a book that is acting as if it has a real long game that I'm not sure it's ever going to get to. And I wish we weren't in a comics climate that required you to be a little bit to have more of a short game. You know, I wish we could do the long thing where, uh, <laughs> Asriel gets a hundred, a million issues. Yes. 
a million million issues of Azrael. Um, but we're not there anymore. And because of that, I start to identify – because knowing as a comic book reader that these non-name brand comics are going to be on a short leash, I read this stuff and then I think this is going to be something that's never resolved or it's not going to be resolved satisfactorily because uh, you know, it's going to – all of a sudden it will be canceled and they'll have to cram it all into the last issue or something, you know? Yep. And – I'm starting to identify that stuff as I read because we read fucking everything, you know? And I, I just read that line and I chuckled to myself because I thought you're, you're spending a lot of time trying to legitimize this character with guest appearances and things like that, putting him on this strange, uh, hero's journey. Um, and you're, you're not getting to the point of the question of the character and while I admire that in storytelling, it's simply not going to work in these comics that unless they're guaranteed longer runs, you, you kind of have to get to the point quicker and then move on, you know? Yeah. And I, and I don't think these crossovers really move the needle that much because they try this with every book, right? Every book gets these crossovers that are meant to sort of goose the sales a little. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't really prevent these books from getting canceled, you know? Um, now... All of that being said, I'm just presuming that this is going to get canceled by issue eight or something. Um, I could be wrong, but that that was what I thought while reading this. Yeah, I don't disagree with any of that. Um, what's so odd about this book is that they really want you to feel like Ethan is the one being used here and that he needs this... Uh, that the revenge story is part of it, right? Or not at least not revenge, the justice story. He needs justice for what's happened to him. And broad strokes, conceptually, I totally get that. But they've given you so little to care about with his character, and they've given you so little about his life before he was damaged that I don't know if I'm rooting for him as a reader to get back to that because I don't know what that was. And I think that that's a really important thing when, when dealing with this kind of story. It's almost like he's been kidnapped by the damaged persona, but we don't know what he was kidnapped from. That well, and that's kind of, yeah, and that's kind of a fascinating that's a, when you say it like that, that's actually a fascinating uh, aspect, I would think, but I, I don't really get that while I'm reading it. No, not at all. Um. The thing I want to talk about is how fucking DC cannot write Poison Ivy consistently from <laughs> issue to issue. Well, keep in mind, this uh, well, takes he, place before... Yes, but even so... <laughs> I in, know, I yeah, yeah. Even, like, panel to panel, in this issue, Poison Ivy's like, I'm gonna rebuild Gorilla City, bitches. And then he's <laughs> like... And then she's like, oh, no, I'm not. I'm a hero again. <laughs> it's so inconsistent and weird. I don't know why this character has such a hard time... Just being one thing. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. And the one thing can be a nuanced, interesting anti-hero or whatever. But they just have... There's they're just these wild mood swings in the characterization that I don't understand. Yeah. I mean, yeah. If they decided... You know, because we don't own the characters. If they decided that they were still going to make her, like... um. 
essentially good, but maybe misguided when it came to the way that she defends Mother Earth or whatever. Kind of kind of like her classical anti-hero stance. If they were going to continue to do that, then and again, this is just me complaining about you know the way I wish it were written, but I, I think I think it makes for a stronger character. This is why we are bitter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> I think it makes for a stronger character if you don't have her occasionally cackling like a mad man, mad woman. You know? Yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like you can have that that nuance in there without uh, making her like go insane sometimes and yeah yeah uh, again from the annals of sentences i never thought i'd say the best poison ivy's been in rebirth was in background the birds of prey where she was essentially an ally but an ally with a very different moral code and set of expectations for every event that she found herself in mm-hmm. and that can work really well and i don't know why if that's what DC wants, yes, it's a nuanced take, but you can just tell people, like, you know, it's not like Superman shows up in other issues and pantses people. Like, he, <laughs> he has a consistent tone across appearances. I don't know why they can't do that with Wonder Woman, with uh, Poison Ivy, rather. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also want to say that um, I really dislike the way that Damage looks. Oh, yeah. Like, the more I think about this Grey Hulk bullshit, I just don't like it. <laughs> Who does he look like? He looks like, uh... I it's don't know. He kind of looks... Yeah, he kind of looks like Solomon Grundy sometimes. Born on a Monday? <laughs> uh... And that was the beginning of Superman's undies. Yep. Um... Remember that miniseries? Like, around the time of Flashpoint, there was a Solomon Grundy miniseries? Oh, no, I don't at all. Taking to the Google machine. Solomon Grundy miniseries. Scott Collins, Jeff Johns? What? Ah, this didn't happen. Come on. It did. Christ. Three stars. Disjointed. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it was it was a Blackest Night prelude. That's what it was. All right, okay. I forgot about this. It just it just came to me right now. Oh, and this was I want to say this was. Um... No, I think of something else. Hang on. Again, riveting radio for our listeners right now. Um... Yeah, Frankenstein was in this miniseries. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, at one point, I believe Johns just wrote that one issue, but there was a miniseries written by, written and illustrated by Scott Collins around the same time. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I, I vaguely am remember. I'm remembering a little more and more the, the more you talk about this. Okay. Well... <laughs> You're welcome. I'm sorry. Thank you. I don't know how to respond to that. I don't have space in my brain for this shit anymore. Well, that's why we're uh, starting Space Force. (laughs) 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 And I'm not talking about the First Order, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Or am I? 
Or are you? Maybe they are. Maybe they are. Uh, let's take a break. I'll be back in just a second before this Hello, we're the hosts of the Multiversity Manga Club podcast. I'm Emily. I'm Zach. And I'm Walter. Each month, we pick a manga to read and discuss among ourselves. Past books include Monster, A Silent Voice, and Pokemon Adventures. We also look back on the past month's installments of Weekly Shonen Jump, discussing the highs and lows from the Viz Anthology. We've even discussed notable manga adaptations like Netflix's Death Note. At the end of each episode, we announce next month's book club pick so you can read along with us. We're always open to suggestions for future books as well. So join us on the first Friday of every month on multiversitycomics.com, Apple Podcasts, or your podcatcher of choice. And we are back with Green Lanterns number 49, the final issue before we all get jurgens right in our faces, <laughs> right in our stupid faces. Um, this was written by Aaron Gillespie, illustrated by Rose Antonio. Who I feel like illustrates a book a week at this point for DC. <laughs> yeah. Right? Doesn't that seem like Yeah. That? Yeah. Yeah. Roge has got a insane output. Yeah. And it's pretty good for the most part. Oh, I mean, yeah, it's, absolutely. Yeah. Especially considering that he has to draw eight pages a minute. You know, his, his quality <laughs> is pretty good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just don't give a shit about these characters right now. And that is, I, I came to that conclusion while reading this, and that really bums me out because conceptually i really like the idea of both simon and jess but this book has just reduced them to to characters i just i just can't care about i just yeah. can't i'm sorry guys well and I, I i guess i've kind of figured out the reason why that is for me okay lay it on me so so how long has simon been around simon came about in the zero issue of green lantern of the new 52 which I believe was the 13th month of the New 52, so that would put us, like, October of 2012, let's call it. Right, okay. So he, he's been around for five, six years, right? Yeah, yeah. And I get that they're, that, you know, regardless of whether, regardless of whether they've been around for six months or six years, they're still the relative newbies in the... Green Lantern sphere. Yes. But I hate the way that what that means for them is that for six years, I mean, it's been less for Jess, but, you know, including both of them in this, essentially for six years, one or both of these characters have been, have spent almost the entire time being othered, you know? They are the yeah. other Lanterns. They, when I think of the Green Lantern core, one of my favorite things about it Probably my favorite thing is how, you know, with the exception of certain points in time, uh, Hal is not the only Green Lantern, you know? Right. There are other Green Lanterns, and they are called Green Lanterns, and at different points in time, they are just as important, if not more important, than Hal. And it goes in and out, and it's I, – I think, you know, w with the – I think in the – in the 90s through the animated series up until John's kind of brought back Hal, I think it was a pretty equal opportunity for all the Lanterns across the board, the main ones, you know, relatively. I but might now, take issue with that, but I see your point. Well, I mean, the, what I mean is, like, in the animated series, John was the top dog. Right. 
there were times where Guy was like the Green Lantern of like of the Justice League. Yeah, and then there and then there were there was a huge swath of time where Kyle was the Green Lantern. Right. You know, and literally the only Green Lantern. Right. Right. I don't mean I don't mean they were all equal all at one time. Right. Okay, I just that's, fair. That, that's fair. I mean, right, they've yeah. all had their they've all had their time in the sun. And now that's kind of been, you know, since Hal got brought back by Jeff Johns, all of them kind of play these secondary roles, you know. Mm-hmm. But then I feel like okay. Jess and Simon, despite them having their own book, are playing a tertiary role because when I read them, they still feel like these characters who don't belong and that's a problem because they're also minority characters who who the the I know the intent is to bring diversity into the Green Lantern Corps and that's great but I think they kind of I think they do well with aspects of that and then I think they kind of undermine it by continuing to bring them back to this point where they need to be quote unquote reined in or have restrictions set upon them, or they're still the newbies. They're not a part of the real Green Lantern Corps. When the when the four horsemen are off doing their thing or whatever in in Venditti's book, they're nowhere to be found. You know, they may as well not be lanterns in in those moments, you know? Yes. And I feel like that really hurts them as characters. I, w- I want to care about them, but the fact of the matter is I don't even care about anything that's really going on with the lanterns right now as a whole. Like, I don't really care what's going on with John and Kyle and guy and Hal. And so I care even less when I think about these other lanterns who, whose like solo stories are constantly getting undermined. Um, and maybe others are not having that same reading experience. Maybe they're, maybe they're just reading fun stories with these two lanterns. But when I read them, I can't help but think that all the writers, whether they mean to or not, just still see them as not full lanterns somehow. Well, that's a, that's an interesting observation. I, I wouldn't have phrased it that way, but I think I agree with everything you said pretty much. I um, One of the things I've noticed is that there's almost nothing about them that has been established about the type of heroes that they are. Like, we know that Jess has anxiety. We know that um, that Simon has his past as a car thief and all that. But, like, one of the things I love about the Green Lantern books are if you read them long enough, you begin to understand who the characters are as lanterns. Are You know, um, I reference this almost every show, but the last, like, five pages of Battle from Green Lantern Rebirth, the, the miniseries, was John's going through each of the five core lanterns and what makes them unique. You know, that Kilowogs is the only ring that makes a noise because there's so much power coming from it. And John's the architect and Kyle's the artist and all this. And it's just, you know, that stuff can come off as trite, but it gives but it gives a really under really solid understanding of who the characters are supposed to be and what you're getting from them as heroes. I don't know a damn thing about these two characters in that way. They were on the Justice League for like 30 issues, and I never saw them do anything unique. Yeah. Yeah. I hope that putting Jess on the Justice League Odyssey team will be a good thing for her. Yeah, I hope so. I'm I'm waiting for them to break out, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, I agree. Um, about this issue now, in particular, um, Roche Antonio was fine. The issue was kind of dumb. The end? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, it's, I mean, this whole little, this two little, two issue arc was kind of, again, like what I said, where we're, we're like, you're starting Jessica off from like a, you've got to prove yourself all over again type thing. And then by the end, oh, she proves herself and, and, you know. And it's almost like, she's, like in this particular issue, it's not like she proves herself so much as that they just start to believe her. Yeah, yep. Yep. And, and, and that's, that's all well and good because I feel like that's, that potentially could show growth for a character. But the problem with that is that I feel like that's been done many times. I feel like many times we've had to see them go, oh yeah, she's, uh, she belongs. And then, and then eventually somebody decides that's not the case. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Or whatever. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. Um, I didn't even open this book, but you told me you did. So we're going to talk about it a little bit. Harley Quinn number 44, written by Chris Sabella, illustrated by Mirko Andolfo. Oh, I don't, uh, Mirko Andolfo's art is, is quite nice. Um, very well suited for a character like Harley and, uh, you know, humorous looking art, but the character still is just not one that I want to be reading right now, I guess. And, and even Chris Sabella, who I like a lot, can't really make that happen for me. Fair enough. I don't know. It's, it's oversaturation at this point. That's all. It's oversaturation, and I think that um, this is not going to come as a surprise to anybody who listens to this show. But I think we're also just tired of this type that this style of Harley Quinn characterization. Yeah, it's it's gone to its logic furthest conclusion logically, and we're ready for something else for the character. Um, all right, let's talk about Justice League number two. Written by Scott Snyder, illustrated by Jorge Jimenez. This is, um, you know, if the first issue was very much a pilot, done by a different artist, sort of set a little earlier than this, this really feels like the beginning of of the run. And uh, I'm going to let you start with this one, Vince. What would you think of this issue? Oh, Maron. <laughs> Molto bene. Mwah. This was a spicy meatball. Um, fantastic issue, just wonderful, as good as that first issue, I think. First of all, Jorge Jimenez art, just excellent, so expressive, so tone perfect, you know, um, I absolutely love from page one, what Scott Snyder is doing with these villains particularly Lex Luthor, you've got him standing in front of the American flag with his arms spread, talking to these uh, vets at this Legionnaire club in where, Kansas or something? Um, yeah, Kansas. Smallville, right? Or close to Smallville? Can- Kansas West Legionnaires Club. I don't know if it's close to Smallville or not. but uh, His father was. Well, uh, his father, yes. Yeah. Yep, so it must be. <clears throat> so, But I love it because... He's he's rigged the building with explosives. Um and 
And to like, I guess the point that I'm trying to get at is like the way that it's played in this comic is that that's a very dark idea, but it's not played in a gruesome way. And so what Snyder seems to be doing with all of these villains, really, but Lex Luthor central to this whole point is that there, he's not being he, he's bringing in the Legion of Doom. Right. But he's not being silly with it, even though he's using uh the villains from that time, which were very silly, played in a very silly manner in the 60s. He's using that exact iteration, but he's legitimizing them. But he's not overdoing it on the gruesomeness. He's so, not Tom Kinging it. Yeah, exactly. Well, yes. But so so to say that Luther's lined this building with explosives, it's it's almost played comedically in the way that like... He doesn't want to kill them. He may as well be walking in with a big round bomb with a giant wick on it. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's that level of kind of like, hey, I lined your uh, building with explosives, but it's it's in a light way. You know, it's really funny. It's like a funny thing to do. <laughs> and they all they're all they all run. You know, they don't die. They get away. It explodes. But like, so it's a very like comic book villainy thing to do without being silly. It's like the exact right tone. And he kind of does that with – even though we don't get to read a whole lot about the other villains or, or, or see them do very much, you get the sense that that's what he's going for with everybody. Yes. Like you get to see the Joker and the Joker is wearing like a suit, like a classic vision of what the Joker used to be, this clown in a, in a purple suit, purple and green and just grinning, you know, but he, but he doesn't have to be this like twisted ghoulish version, at least not yet. We haven't seen, you see Sinestro in his old like jester costume and he shows up and he just does his like cackling villain thing. You know, none of it is, none of it is so dark as to be like, I mean, I don't think this book is for kids, but it's not like, it's not like gruesome, grim and gritty DC comics aren't for kids anymore. You know what I mean? Right. Um, and that's what impresses me most about this because you could very easily bungle bringing the Legion back, but you bring them back and there's, they're the classic looks of these characters that you want to see. And he adds these wrinkles of mystery to it too. Like they've got this baby in captivity, right? And there's just so many wrinkles to this book. So there's something on almost every page that makes you say, I want to learn more about that. Yes. You know? This book has so many expertly planted seeds that I can't wait to watch blossom. Yeah. But it's not like um it's doing it's doing the same thing that a that like one of those great splash pages that we love that shows like future possibilities or whatever, mm-hmm. future storylines. It's it's accomplishing that, but it's accomplishing it organically in the story, which we love those splash pages, but I think narratively it's more satisfying to sort of drop those in every once in a while, you know? Yeah. And it's doing it with this, you know, the Justice League has to act, and they have to act now. But along the way, they're running into all these different potential obstacles or potential ways that the story could jut out in different directions. But they don't have time to get to that now, you know? Oh, it's so well done. So any bets as to who the baby is? I I was racking my brain, and I can't really... I can't think of it. Was there a baby involved at the end of Dark Side War? 
Well, there was Dark Side Baby. Not Dark Side War. I'm sorry. Uh, Trinity War. <sighs> I don't know. Or am I thinking of the um, Alexander Luthor's baby thing? Uh, to be honest, from Earth Three, remember there it was like, um, Mazas or whatever the Shazam backwards. Uh huh. Wasn't there a baby involved with that? I don't. I don't remember, man. Yeah, I can't help you. Sorry, Jeff Johns. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I was thinking about it too. I'm not really sure who the baby is, but it's a fun little MacGuffin. Yeah. Yeah, um, I I loved the John Stewart stuff in this issue. Again, I loved Snyder referencing who John Stewart is as a hero, mentioning both the architect and the uh, and the marine. That was good. I thought this was a much less obtrusive Swamp Thing cameo, even though it's in space. Damage. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Damage. Um, I uh, I just adored this issue. Really yeah, good. yeah, and the, let's see what else. Uh, Lex getting his face ripped off to reveal that he's a Luthor bot. Yep, a Lex bot. Um, there, <laughs> Luth, Luthor revealing that he's actually inside. Yep. Uh, Superman, incredible. Which, man, what a reveal! Because one of the conceits of the issue is that. Um, Superman and Martian Manhunter uh, have to go to this place and inside of them is going to be Batman and uh, Hawkgirl. Hawkgirl, yes. Yep, Hawkgirl was going to be the other one. And that's that's a bonkers enough conceit on its own. But then on the last page, you see Luthor just like laughing. Yep. Laughing his ass off flying this tiny little ship inside Superman. And it's Oh my god. It, it that's perfect. That's what I want. That's what I want from my Justice League. Agreed. Thank you, Scott Snyder. Yeah, and and you know, speaking of of silly stuff, like the the ultraviolet core and the still force and all of that. Like that's that can all be a little bit corny. But if Snyder manages to keep this level of of interest and uh you know, playing with concepts that might be a little silly or corny, but playing them relatively straight, this could be a great run. Yeah. Jorge Jimenez for president. <laughs> uh, brings us to the Man of Steel number four, written by Brian Michael Bendis, illustrated by Kevin McGuire. Now, Vince, you and I and Zach talked last week. Zach had a really fun idea about who the man that... Lois Clark and John C in the kitchen is yeah, and we didn't wah, get wah. That. yes. <laughs> um, we'll get to that in a second though. I, I wanted to mention how I absolutely love that every one of these four issues has started with a circle on the front page on the first page. Yeah, first it was Krypton, and then it was Earth, and now it's uh, Superman's Iris looking at Rolazar coming at him. It's, uh, it's just a nice little bit of, of continuous storytelling. Um, 
did this feel like the most Bendis issue so far to you? Um, boy, I mean, it probably it when I, while I was reading it, it didn't feel that way, but now that I think about it, it probably was. But at the same time, I don't. I don't think it was that bad. Like I don't, I don't think I, I didn't think it was bad at all. I enjoyed no. it. Um but there is simply the one scene the the, the scene, the Jason Fabok scene. Yes. Yep. Where where he has to repeat. Yes. And you know what I almost read that as? This this might be giving Mendes too much credit. Uh-huh. I almost read that as the same moment in time we're just seeing it maybe extremely slowed down or like over you know what I mean? Like there's no way. Maybe I I think I'm like I said I think I'm giving him yeah. too much credit but but with him saying dad what is that you know and, and you're seeing it from different perspectives and like zoomed in it it almost made me think that you know are we just are we just seeing the same moment but you're probably right it's probably just repetitive dialogue I mean in the uh, I I I think we're seeing the same lead up to this scene each time yeah, uh, but this is the exact time. But well, within, yeah, yep, yeah, yeah. I'm here for the boy. Which boy? This boy. Me, boy. My grandson. Your son. The son <laughs> of L. Come with me, son. Why? What's happened? Clark, Dad, the son of L. Like, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's very Bendisy. Yeah. Um, but aside from that, I thought this was another pretty good issue. Yeah, I like Hal Jordan playing a little role here again. Yep. Um, I like a lot of the perspective stuff that, uh, Kevin McGuire plays with. So like, what I mean by that is you see panels where like somebody's punched and they go flying around something or like when, uh, I think I don't know. I think that's maybe supposed to be the gossip columnist or something gets sucked out the window. Yes. And you see a very odd perspective on that of Superman saving her. Like you don't really see his whole body. You see like an arm reach for her and then you see his feet fly away, you know? Yeah. But but you get what happened. It's, it's an interesting way of showing a dire moment like that happened so fast that we don't even see it's how everybody else says that it's, he's a speed of light or, or he's a he's a, just like a flash of light, you know. Right. Um, earlier in the issue, Jimmy Olsen is taking pictures of him and they, they can't see what he's seeing in the camera. I think that's supposed to say like that's supposed to highlight how good Jimmy is at his job, you know. Yeah. But like uh, what's her name? The new girl and Perry can't. Uh, can't see what's going on, and he's saying, "Man, they're moving fast." You know, um, we see that as as readers by the way that Kevin McGuire draws this sometimes, right? Which I think is interesting. And I think it's also taking the concept of sequential art to a pretty uh, far conclusion. Mm-hmm. Like you know, we we read comics and we our brains connect the panels to make movement, and this really allows you to do that while still having that missing element because he is moving so fast. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice to see Kevin Maguire doing some regular work again. Yeah. I can't wait for his Supergirl to start in August. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you usually see, uh, just to put a button on that point, you usually see Superman with the person in his arms, like flying up from catching them. 
And this this is like missing that piece, you know? Yeah. It's which is a really interesting perspective that you don't often see. Um it's just it's you can see the wheels turning in Kevin Maguire's thinking about this, you know? Yes. Same at the end when uh oh, I loved that last scene when uh Rogel Zardello is uh <laughs> I'm just gonna I'm gonna keep calling him that, uh is kind of taunting Superman and Superman's face is sort of contorting to to react to whatever Rogal's saying, you know? Yes. Just some really good character work there. And I think the dialogue's pretty good too. Um how Rogal is saying all this stuff about uh how the how Kryptonians are a plague, blah blah blah. Did you do you have children? Have you procreated with these soft earth creatures, you know, and Superman realizes that he might not even be telling the truth about how much he knows about Superman and, and his life on Earth and what other Kryptonians may or may not be around, you know. That he's just saying that stuff as a means to an end, you know, and I think that was a really nice touch. If you if you went back and read dialogue from earlier issues, you might knowing knowing that now, you might pick up on some things, I think. And yes. That's really interesting. Yeah, I, two points I want to make about this. Uh, the first is that I think it's um, it's interesting that we now know when that short story that first appeared in um, the Superman, uh, the Action, Action 1000, by the way, I'm sorry. Um, remember there was that like tease for this and Superman was thrown into that cafe and the two of them were talking about his trunks? Mm-hmm. Yes. Like that yep. that happens in this issue essentially. Yes. Yep. You um, see. Yeah. Yep. And so that that was interesting. I'm, I I don't know if it was necessary. It was interesting. My favorite bit of dialogue, though, because it showed Bendis having fun with the DC universe in a way that he was never able to before, was um, I really liked when he said, uh, "Like we have to." It basically. Like we need to know what Kryptonians on are on this Earth or any other, and warn them. That's such a DC Universe thing to do. Mm-hmm. Just so great. Just just showing the width and breadth of the DC Universe. How th- just acknowledging there are other Kryptonians and other Earths and that sort of thing. Um, I love that stuff. Yeah. This is this is still very very good. And with news that Superman, the the monthly series, will have the nuclear man in it, <laughs> man, that's good. That's 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 the stuff, baby. That is the stuff. All we need now is for Richard Pryor's Superman three character to become canon. <laughs> and uh, uh, I it, it it was earlier in the night, and I was uh, I was really concentrating. I could tell you the name of his character without looking it up. Um, but I I think it's uh, I do not believe that that's the case yeah Uh, fuck it's so close in my head too but that's alright I guess now that we're four sixths of the way through Man of Steel can we acknowledge just how much better this is than we ever dreamed possible yeah yes I think it is yep I was so skeptical (laughs) yeah we all were I think um. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't we be? <laughs> so, um, let's talk about New Challengers number two. 
written by Scott Snyder and Aaron Gillespie, illustrated by Andy Kubert. Um, this issue just kind of jumps you, it jumps around in time a little bit. And, you know, the first issue was the story of sort of one of the new challengers and how they came to that position. And then this has a similar, uh, a similar goal, but I didn't realize that's what it was doing at first. And so I was like, this is a, this is a very weird issue. This is a very weird way to start this issue. However, I, I enjoyed getting another take on these, uh, on these characters and on one character in particular, you know, level up the character through a backstory. Um, I'm still enjoying this book. What about you? Yeah. Yes. I don't think that this issue was as heartwarming as that first issue. And it's, it's interesting to say that it's heartwarming because it's very, it's kind of a very pulpy action book to begin with. But I think that that first issue was a little touching at times. Agreed. And I, I didn't think that was the case on this issue, but it wasn't going for that. Right. But it made it a little less special. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I think it was still a really competent book. I think the the character the like sort of hacker character's origin story was really um really interesting because of the way that I don't think we've seen that type of character who maybe this maybe this issue is more emotional than I'm giving it credit for because that character is written with some true feeling emotional stakes for wanting to live a life of seclusion you know? Yeah. And I think they, I think uh, Snyder and Gillespie did an amazing job of getting that to come across and carrying that weight throughout this character's story. Actually. Yeah. Maybe, you know, I, I might not have felt that on my, on my read through. I may, I may not have connected with it emotionally, but now that I'm talking about it, I realize it was there. Um, so I think it's even better than I'm giving it credit for, uh, in that regard. And I think Hubert's art is still really adventurous and exciting. Um, and then <laughs> I love that final page reveal too. Yes. Um, and to be honest, I'm not going to say that I guessed it or that I saw it coming, but it was one of those things where when it happened, you went, oh, well, of course. Right, yeah. You know, if this is like a they've they've played this new challengers team up as there's something going on behind the scenes that may be sinister and then uh the idea that is it's this homage to kirby and and whatnot you know then boom you bring in the original challengers team like of of course they were going to do that right it makes perfect sense yeah uh I, i have three quick things to add and and then i think you covered most of it really really nicely the first is this is the way you do a bigger heroes cameo. Aquaman was there for like two pages, and then was out. Yeah, it connected it to the larger DC universe. He didn't overstay his welcome. Nice. Number two, uh, I I think Andy Kubert is such a good artist, and probably will never get his full due because of his family history. Just you know, the Kuberts are are an important family in comics. But no one will ever get the due that his dad got. Which is fair, because his dad was one of the most innovative artists of his time. But I, I think Andy Kubert will always be living in Joe's shadow, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a shame, because Andy Kubert, especially like the, under, the underwater dinosaurs and stuff, were all fantastic in this issue. 
Mm-hmm. Fan, fantastic. My final point is uh, more so than any book aside from maybe Sideways. This is the one that to me screams ongoing more than any other one. And it's mm. a miniseries. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a real bummer. Yeah, especially now that they kind of potentially opened it up, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Maybe these characters will show up someplace else. I doubt Maybe. that, though. Yeah. I wish they would. I wish they would just be able to run around in the background. Exactly. Well, that brings us to our final issue of the night, The Wild Storm, number 14, written by Warren Ellis, illustrated by John Davis Hunt. Um, what can we say about this book we haven't already said? <laughs> um, I don't know, man, but... Oh, this issue was really good. <laughs> Every page looked beautiful. Mm-hmm. The story was clear and easy to follow but still part of this incredibly complex mythology um i really like the stuff with alex fairchild mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what John, what a way what a way to introduce a character and like explain their backstory through pretty natural dialogue over mm-hmm. the course of a few pages and then essentially end our time with them probably for good probably for good i was gonna say that yeah um, in like less than 10 pages and have it be so compelling and so well-rounded and um, yeah, yeah, and just so expertly illustrated. Oh, man. John Davis Hunt is just doing some insane stuff on this comic. Mm-hmm. The zealot gunfight in the beginning. Yep. You know, we've seen a few of these sequences from John Davis Hunt where he gets to just do like a three, four, five page action action sequence and it never gets old to me. He he just does it in such a way that like you can imagine every motion yep. without seeing. It's like you were talking about earlier with with Superman. We like you fill in we fill in these blanks and with him it's like crystal clear. It's almost like storyboards for a movie, you know? But without the stiffness. Yeah, fully detailed and and fully fluid. Yeah. Yeah, and all the little details. I love how I love how the lettering like whether it's on the signs or on <coughs> Alex's shirt um it's all done by John Davis Hunt. I think the only exception is the coffee mugs. Probably, yeah. Everything else is lettered by hand in the in the illustration. And I love when artists do that because I think when when they just, you know, put in some word art or some typed text, it always sticks out like a sore thumb. Yep. And I think I, I like that Davis Hunt goes the extra mile to do that. Um, man, so good, so good, and and we're still we're fourteen issues into a twenty four issue series, 
And we're still establishing Wildstorm characters that we haven't seen in the reboot yet. Yep. Like Caitlin Fairchild. Or like we saw Jack Hawksmore for like two pages before this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. Just super I love how I love how he's like lost too. Yeah. Like he's got no idea who he is really. He just knows that he wants to some dirt under his feet. Yeah. Oh man. I uh I'm really wondering if this is the book that's gonna change after year two. I don't know. I don't think it is anymore. I almost think I almost think because this is this is issue fourteen, right? Yeah. And we haven't heard a thing about another book after this and Michael Cray. Well, that's not entirely true. We heard that there was going to be a uh Wildcats book at some point. That was confirmed or that was a rumor? I want to say it was confirmed, but there was never any creative team or time frame put on it. Right. Okay. I almost wonder if this book is going to come to a complete end and then something else is going to start up. That's because, the, because, because this is me really going – I'm really reading way into this. But this book is called The Wild Storm, right? Mm-hmm. What if its only purpose around twenty four uh, throughout its first twenty four issues is to establish all the Wildstorm characters before actually moving on to the big oh, that's coll- interesting. collision or whatever? You know? Yeah. I mean, I just can't get over that we're fourteen issues in and we're just seeing Caitlin Fairchild. We haven't seen Midnighter and Apollo or any of that stuff yet. You know, we've spent rel- relatively little time with a lot of these characters. They could certainly do it. I, I think Warren Ellis has the ability to certainly wrap this up in by the time 24 issues comes, comes around, you know? Yeah. But I'm wondering if that's not going to happen. And I'm wondering if that wasn't the plan the whole time, that's you know? That's very interesting. Yeah. Well, Vince, let's look ahead to next week. Yeah. Well, we for, first of all, hopefully Zach, hopefully you find a Lazarus pit or something. Yes. Bring him back. If you know where you can find a Lazarus pit, tweet at us and let us know where we can take Zach. Um, but we get the finale of Bane Conquest. <laughs> Hell yeah. Uh, we get the first bit of the Brian Hill Outsiders Detective Comics run. Ooh, yeah. I'm next, looking forward to that. Yeah, the next Flash War installment. Um, Man of Steel, Mira, Queen of Atlantis, uh, Terrifics, and uh, the Teen Titans special. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that's a pretty good week. That's a good-ass week. There's also, you know, uh, Wonder Woman, the Hellblazer, Hal Jordan... Uh, Batman Beyond, yeah, in there. But you know, you can also you can buy a Joker cane for one hundred and twenty five dollars if you want. I mean, that is if you didn't already pre order it. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, Vince, if people do want to tweet at you with the location of a Lazarus pit, where would they do so? Um, on Twitter at LCD underscore lound system. Since we have a little bit of extra time here, can we talk about the the etymology of that Twitter handle? (laughs) Well, (laughs) look, it's fucking nice out and I'm just trying to smoke lound. And, uh, (laughs) also I like 
LCD lounge system. I like LCD sound system, so I'm LCD lounge system. There we go. One of one of my mufos, my my mutual followers, <laughs> uh, once told me that that was one of the top ten uh, Twitter handles they've ever seen, and so after that, I knew that it would stick. So wow. okay, yeah. I was not familiar with lounge as a, uh, <laughs> as as a term for cannabis. Well, you know, only a only a true pothead like Zach would. That's true. <laughs> Rest his soul. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can tweet at me at Brian needs a nap, and uh, if you follow me, you know I'm angry right now about about politics. Yeah, we. Oh, I'm very angry. You're, you're going to see a lot of angry retweets of. Um, uh, people dunking on the ghoulish right wing people of the world. So, yep. Prepare to deal with that. And if you don't like it, don't don't follow. You don't have to follow. You can be you can do what I do to podcasts and things that I don't like and yell at them in the car. You can do that to us. Just I don't I don't need to hear about it. You but could also send us money. <laughs> Just saying <laughs> to get us to stop. Is that no what no? Because you love us. Oh, I was talking about the people who don't like. Yeah, us. but I'm trying to get them to love us. Uh, okay i'm building our brand here all right i don't know i don't know how them sending us money gets them to love us but okay uh well think about it this way you know when you're when your local npr station has their pledge drive and you're oh do i and you're so frustrated by hearing them beg for money you just give them money so they'll shut up yeah yeah but they never shut up even though you you give them money that's right. They they still three months later they still did it. So that's they the thing with us. That we'll promise that we'll shut up if you send us money. We're not going to stop. <laughs> it's the perfect crime. Yeah. No one's ever talked about NPR's pleasure drive before. This is this is entirely new content. <laughs> Hashtag new content. Now I have uh, the perfect crime by the December stuck in my head. So oh, that's Thank a good. You. That's a good jam. It is perhaps oh, yeah. perhaps their most talking heads ish song. Oh, I can see that. Sure, yeah. I've, Good call. Uh, I don't have a problem, but I have watched Stop Making Sense three times in the last week. Yeah, I was gonna say you were watching that on Father's Day. You sent me a. I did. You sent me a tweet about that. You saw the big suit. Of course, I did. When when you saw the big suit, did you lean over and whisper to your wife, "That's the big suit"? Actually, she was in the room with me, <laughs> and she said. Oh, there's the big suit. Okay. <laughs> like, like she was, she was aware that's a Talking Heads thing, yeah. but she wasn't aware that it was from Stop Making Sense, you know. So, sure. Um, but yeah. So then, did you laugh because it was the tweet about it was it, it was chappy esque? Yes. yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, that is one of the all time tweets. Oh, it's great, and it's so simple. Yeah, it's yeah. perfect. It is. It is perfect. Um. <laughs> If you want to look back at some of Zach's perfect tweets from before he uh, joined that uh, that big Kingdom Hearts convention in the sky, <laughs> you can find them at Wilker Fox. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think if Zach legitimately died before the newest Kingdom Hearts came out, he'd be <laughs> he'd be just just devastated. He's going to He's gonna implore them to just work the paddles until they bring him exactly, back. Exactly. Yeah. He he has like the most detailed DNR of all time. Yeah. <laughs> or, or rather, not DNR. You know, he has. You know, you understand yeah. what I'm saying. Well, yes. yes. Actually, if 
Kingdom Hearts gets delayed again, he probably that's probably in his DNR, you know. Right, yeah. If it gets delayed one more time, eh, don't bother. We're done. <laughs> um so I, I had an idea that I was gonna run by you guys with, with Zach on the show tonight, but I guess I'll 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 uh I'll throw it out there a little bit for you tonight. So we haven't done a book club pick in a while. Yeah, we also haven't done our uh, Watchmen watch yet. Oh no, we haven't. We should. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna hold off. We're gonna watch the Watchmen thing first. That's we have to do that sometime soon. Yeah, uh, that's really important. We promise people we do that, and uh, we haven't. So let's just yeah, let's focus on that. But before I introduce another bullshit idea into this uh, <laughs> into this podcast, let's watch that Watchmen movie. Well, now I gotta know. No, you don't. Uh, I I I spent like three dollars on that used Blu-ray. Yep. So, yeah, you did. Yep. You know, I gotta get my money's worth there. If we, you know, if they ever release the Snyder Cut, we're gonna have to do the. Oh yeah, <laughs> the Snyder Cut Mystery Science Theater. Uh, by the way, every day this week we've had at least one release of Snyder Cut tweet at Multiversity. Jesus Christ! And most, Come on, people. most of them have two hashtags. Okay. Uh, I think I, I stand. I stand with Zach. Yes, I, stand, I hashtag release the Snyder Cut hashtag. I stand with Zach Snyder, but. <laughs> I just guessed that too. I had no idea. Lately, honestly. I have noticed there's also a trend of people including the word auteur in the no. tweets. <laughs> um, but I'll, I'll leave you with this talking about the Watchmen movie. So I, I'm not going to use any names or um, or any real descriptors here because God forbid this person listens. They're a nice person, and I don't want them to. Uh, to, to, to think I'm, I'm dunking on them, even though I'm about to absolutely dunk on them. So there's a, a, a there's a person I know who at one point in my life I worked with, okay? Mm-hmm. And they fancy themselves a movie expert and have since I worked with them many, many years ago. Okay, yep. Now, tell me, Vince, what's the panel or page from Watchmen that everybody's been tweeting in the last, you know, couple years? Um, I'm tired of the, these people and they're being yes. caught in there. Yeah. Yes. And he's on Mars. Yes. Yeah. This person, instead of tweeting that tweeted the scene from the movie where that happens. <laughs> <I've>... <laughs> That's... <laughs> That is that's very funny to me in a very specific way Isn't that yeah. that, that pe- most people probably wouldn't understand. And I'm right. I don't I'm not saying that as a snob. I'm saying that as somebody who like is so broken inside that they don't find traditional things funny anymore. Right. And yeah. Yeah. It, it would be like if somebody uh somebody not Matt Milikoff, your friend of mine preferred a kids bop version of a song to the real version of a song <laughs> matt loves kids bop by the way i know he does yeah i know that's how he stays that's how he stays hip to the what the kids are listening to exactly um and i get it i've had to i've had to listen to a lot of kids bop and you know it's not the most great sometimes you get a funny um you know they'll change the word uh alcohol or something to or juice or whatever you know and then you have a little laugh and i think the best one is from the iconopop cover where it's um 
the real line is you're from the seventies and I'm a nineties bitch. Mm. And this is you're from the seventies and I'm a kids bop kid. Oh yeah. So <laughs> fuck you, Dad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although I have to say I have never played that for my kids. I No. No, I I, I make like mixed CDs for the car that we listen to. Mm. And uh so, you know, my kids are the weird ones who love like, you know, they like ween songs and shit. Oh yeah, yep, yeah. So we don't yeah. We don't censor anything for our for my stepdaughter. Like how old is she now? She's ten now, but like we never have, you know. Yeah, we maybe won't play certain things in the car. Yeah, I mean yeah, we definitely yes. We definitely shy away from playing certain things, but if we're listening to something and it happens to have like a you know, we don't yeah, we don't go out of our way. Yeah. Like we probably wouldn't listen to um like the life of Pablo on purpose around because I don't want to explain how bleach <laughs> exactly like bleach does. Yeah. Exactly. You know, but like, you know, we took her to see father John Misty last week and he was dropping F bombs and you, you did take her to that show. No, we did. Oh, you did really? Yeah. Yep. I was not aware of that. Yeah. Well, you know, we always, we always do rock the garden that way. Oh, okay. That, that's Here. fun. That's fun. Yeah, yeah. There was a an article by a guy really like Stephen Hyden who basically said bad parents bring kids to concerts, and ba- uh, bad ones. Yeah. Oh. He 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 was saying how like you Fuck know you, at, yeah he was saying as a music fan there's nothing worse than being at a concert like, next to a kid and I couldn't disagree more with that. Well, okay. Context though, like Rock the Garden is this festival where it's this big open space on the hill and you just. You know, if you want, you just hang in the back and hang out on the hill and right. you're, you know, it's perfectly fine. Yeah, it's very different. I, I get what he means if you're taking him to First Avenue or whatever. What, what he said was, and this is great DC Comics content here, um, he said that he, he was at the Nationals Festival they did. And, oh, yeah. yeah. And right. how it was that they were doing. Homecoming? Or yeah, yeah. Yeah. They were doing, I think it was Boxer. Yes. In, 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 uh, in its entirety. And he was he had paid for like he was in the VIP section. There was a dad there with his daughter on her on his shoulders, and how by like song three the daughter was clearly and very obviously bored, and they left before side two even started. Mm-hmm. And how he was saying like this is a shitty thing because the kid doesn't get a good concert experience, and maybe will be less likely to go see a concert again in the future because they had this negative experience. The dad gets a negative experience; so he doesn't get to see the the whole set he wants to see. And all that could have been avoided if he just left the kid at home. Yeah. I I see his point. I think there's a way to do it. And I think, like, the way that we just did it worked. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. Th- oh, but, oh, yeah, I certainly wouldn't. You wouldn't take somebody to a show at First Avenue or even at, like, a – even if someone's playing at a theater or something. Right, you know, yeah. It's – Yeah. Anyway, this is proof we talk and, about stuff that isn't comics. The, yep, and hey, this is back matter. So if you don't want to listen, you could have shut it off a long time ago. That is absolutely true. And now, you don't pay anything for this anyway, you freeloading assholes. Yeah. Uh, now we're going to dissect the map for 20 minutes because it's back matter. So we're going to talk about the various yeah, the blue reasons. Yeah, the blue is land. Of course, first obviously. Of yeah. <laughs> all right, folks. Uh, R.I.P. Zach. See you next week. I would never...
claim that someone is racist against Italians because I don't want any of the stink of that Sopranos Columbus Day episode to come on to me.